Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from the World. This is David Robert Farmerie. Hello, and welcome back. I hope everyone is doing well. Today's episode is Rodeo Days. Not long ago, I presented a podcast episode that briefly talked about my introduction to rodeo, but not of the rodeo itself, or what I experienced, or what I had learned. This episode will. As I had mentioned in that episode, at the time I had no interest in rodeo and held the sport itself in very low esteem because I personally felt that the sport was inhumane. I bring this up because I tend to also believe that there are many others who think the very same thing. I am, however, compelled to also add this caveat to this story. There are indeed rodeos that are quite inhumane. These tend to be the rodeos that are unsanctioned. Fortunately, the inhumane rodeos are few and very far between. My very first rodeo experience was with the SDRA, that South Dakota Rodeo Association, I think. Anyhow, it was with the SDRA Championships in Rapid City, South Dakota. I was fortunate to be there with Bud Longbreak, who you may remember from the previous podcast, was a world bronc riding champion. In rodeo arenas around the country, Bud's name carries a lot of weight. But in South Dakota... His name, as well as his reputation, are revered. In fact, let me give you a little background on Bud before I continue with the main story itself. When I first began to spend time with Bud, he was a few inches shorter than me, which really doesn't make any difference other than for this part of the story. Bud walked with a slightly swaggering limp that was actually from years of injuries. His knees, both of them, were shot as were his shoulders and, I'm sure, parts of his spinal column. This is a reality for most veteran riders of the rodeo. At one point, I had left South Dakota for other assignments, and I had not seen Bud in a few months. In my absence, Bud had had surgery to replace both of his knees. The next time I saw him, he was the same height as me. We actually had conversations eye to eye. The other thing about Bud is the toothpick. I truly never saw him without one stuck in the corner of his mouth. It turns out that the toothpick inadvertently years ago became a trademark of sorts for Bud. He had always chewed on one, but he would always remove it just before he rode. Well, one day, as I'm told, Bud climbed onto the back of his bronc forgetting to remove the toothpick from his mouth. He kept it in for the entire ride and also won the competition. His ability to successfully ride the bucking bronc and to keep the toothpick steadied in the corner of his mouth for the entire ride made him even more legendary. I truly don't think that he even knows it's there. In all the time I have spent with Bud, I never, ever saw him change toothpicks. Nor have I ever seen a toothpick dislodge while he spoke. It must be some sort of an anomaly, I would guess. And now, back to the main story. 
When I arrived at the arena, I was granted press credentials right away. With Bud and his dad, his dad known as Old Pete, and rightfully so, at the time of the rodeo, Old Pete was in his mid to late 80s, if I could recall correctly. Anyhow, uh, for the next couple of hours, I kind of just walked behind the scenes getting a feel of things. When Bud and Old Pete first arrived, I watched and photographed as they unloaded the horses from the two trailers that they had brought. This was an extraordinary experience for me. The horses, they exited the rear of the trailers, as one might imagine, and immediately they were led into a series of channels, each one leading to a different corral. But getting the horses to the corral that they actually needed was not nearly as easy as it may sound. It was, without any doubt, a choreographed succession of leading horses down one channel and into one corral, then closing certain gates within the channels, rounding up the horses, causing them once again to enter the channels towards yet another corral. Watching how each person played their own role and didn't try to play any other role. It was just this amazingly synchronized method of gathering the horses back into one place, which really people talk about herding cats. Let's talk about herding horses. Man, these things were everywhere and not wanting to do what everybody wanted them to do. As I stood in the first corral, surrounded by these horses, I photographed as Bud and Old Pete maneuvered them into the second set of channels. And for me to be surrounded once again by these horses, some of them passing within inches of me as they ran, was truly exhilarating. It was the most primal feeling I think I have ever experienced. And to get off topic for just a second, you know, I think back to an experience I had on my first trip to East Africa, to Kenya, the southern part of Kenya, in a place called Amboseli. Anyhow, uh, one day I, I had come across this amazing vista, and it was the Owasso and Giro River, and it was spectacular. So without thinking, I stopped my vehicle, I got out, I grabbed a camera, and I started running down this pathway to make a photograph. And as I was about halfway down the pathway, I noticed that the bank of the river was covered with Nile crocodiles. Now, mind you, I specify Nile crocodiles because not only was that what there was, but they are among the fastest of all the crocodiles and the fiercest. Anyhow, I stopped dead in my tracks because I realized in that very moment that I was no longer at the top of the food chain. I was now towards the lower part of the food chain. And again, it was this amazingly primal feeling. But it was nothing compared to the feeling of being surrounded by those horses running past me. As the early rides of the rodeo began, I positioned myself kind of across the arena from the chutes where the horses and riders emerge. This, to me, was the common position for photographers photographing rodeo. But soon, very soon in fact, I realized the limitations of this vantage point, especially for representing the truth about this story that I was about to tell. 
When there was a break in the competition, I returned to the back area, the area where the riders and the horses and the bulls were. I found Bud and I asked if I could photograph from on top of the chutes. I wanted to photograph from a perspective where I could see the horse and the rider leaving. And without hesitation, Bud said yes. It was from this vantage point that I began to learn a lot about the sport of rodeo. I quickly came to realize that for those who compete in rodeo, it is not so much a sport as it is a way of life. And from this area behind the scenes, so to speak, I began to see the rituals of the riders. I saw these rituals time and time again. And I also came to realize that in South Dakota especially, many of the riders are natives, primarily Lakota. This was their way off the res. But it was also something that was in their blood. It was in their DNA. One rider's ritual was to have his hand wrapped with the aid of his cousin. It was obvious that this was a ritual that had played out hundreds and hundreds of times before. And it was clear by the way in which he wrapped the hand that it was indeed ritualistic. Then, with the wrapping complete, the cousin walked away, leaving the rider to himself. The next part of the ritual was in putting on his hat. As strange as this may sound, it was indeed part of the ritual. I can still see it vividly. He stood for a bit, his hat clenched lightly in his right hand. It was evident that he was in deep thought, and I imagine from what I had watched, that he was actually living the ride that he was about to make. When he finished, he slowly bowed his head, and raised his hand until the two met in between. He then gracefully, almost methodically, placed the hat on his head, positioned it just right, then held his hand on it for just a second or two. Each time he rode that day, his rituals were the same. With those rituals now complete, he transitioned to the next one. He walked to the edge of the chute where the horse that he would ride was already loaded into it. He was now positioned above the horse. After pausing for a moment, he slowly reached down and began to gently stroke the horse's mane. There was a gentleness and a deep respect for the horse in his actions. My impression was that, in some way, he was connecting himself with the horse, as well as acknowledging his respect for it. I was truly blown away by this action, which is one that I had witnessed many times from many riders after that. You know, it also gave me my first glimpse into the humanity that existed. In this sport, neither the horse nor the rider have any animosity towards the other. The horse simply wants to throw the rider off its back, and the rider simply wants to stay on as long as he or she can. 
There were other rituals as well. I tend to call them micro-rituals that riders would do off on their own in-between rides. They were like actors who never came out of character in between takes or on long shooting breaks. Early on in the competitions, I watched as one rider, who was quickly thrown off the horse, had his hand stuck in the strap that helped secure it to the saddle. Being unable to free his hand, the rider's body flung repeatedly from the ground, then into the air, rising above the horse, and then back down to the ground again. Eventually, his hand did break free, literally. He had broken his hand and his wrist. Now, with regard to the bulls, well, there may be a little animosity on their part, the bulls part, that is, because once they throw the rider, they will often try to get a little revenge, sometimes even quite a bit of revenge. I continue to photograph from the vantage point uh, up above the, the shoots for probably about an hour. But as I observed time and time again, this vantage point was still not allowing me to photograph the true, or at least what I felt was the true authenticity of the rodeo. It had certainly afforded me opportunities to observe and to witness the rituals and to better understand the rodeo from the rider's perspective, but not completely. Once again, I searched out Bud and I asked if I could shoot from the arena floor close to the chutes. He said that, well, for that, I would need to talk to the man in the pink shirt who was standing at the far left of the arena floor. I made my way over and, after a few minutes of standing there, was finally able to get his attention. I told him that I wanted to photograph from the edge of the chute, you know, just at the edge of where the gate opens and the horse and rider emerge. He looked at me for a moment, then pointed over his right shoulder. You see those paramedics over there, he asked. I hired them for the riders, not for the photographers, he said. In other words... If I get hurt, I'm on my own. Not to worry, I responded with confidence. It happens all the time to us photographers. So after acknowledging my understanding of this agreement, he gave me the go-ahead. For each ride, I positioned myself so that I would be within four feet or less of the horse as it broke out of the chute. This was exactly where I needed to be. From this vantage point, I was able to experience and photograph the full intensity of the rodeo. From this vantage point, I was able to literally feel the ferocity and the unbelievable power of these animals. It was like standing out surrounded by the most intense lightning storm times a thousand. Many people think that it was just an act of not having fear or it was a craving for an adrenaline high, but you know what? It was neither of these. It was truly just being returned to the most primal part of my being. Truly, I mean truly at a cellular level. I have never experienced anything like it, nor have I since. And it also became quite clear to me that each horse 
was the epitome of an athlete. After this, I began to watch the horses more closely before, during, and after each ride. As the horses stood in the waiting areas, they were calm. It was apparent by their breathing, which could be observed by the rise and fall of their ribcage. As they entered the chute, and most did this willingly, their breathing began to intensify. But it was not out of fear. It was like any athlete who is about to compete. And after each ride, when the horses return to the holding area, his breath returns to normal. He is not spooked or agitated in any way. The same goes for the riders. In the months and even the years to follow my experiences at the SDRA championships, I continued to photograph rodeos and I continued to observe. You know, whereas the SDRA event was really on a very large scale, after all, it was a national championship, each of the subsequent rodeos that I photographed were on the level of individual rural towns. The 4th of July rodeo in Pierre, South Dakota, and the annual rodeo in Faith, South Dakota, and so on and so on. These rodeos were the meat of it all. There was something different about these rodeos, not in the way that it was handled or in anything that one could put a finger on. It was more a feeling. In many ways, as I think about this, it was more authentic. It was more genuine. It was more of what rodeo started out as. And again, you know, the one in Rapid City was a championship. That's bound to be different, but being able to experience the rodeos in the small rural towns was absolutely phenomenal. This is where any cowboy or cowgirl could compete. This was, at least in my eyes, what rodeo was truly all about. And it was so apparent that each event was a replication of a rancher's life. Bronc riding is the outcrop of breaking horses, calf roping, barrel racing, each a task of every rancher. But then there was the caveat. And once again, that's the oddball event, at least in my eyes, which is bull riding. The only conclusion that I can come up with is that this was born out of ranchers with way, way, way too much testosterone. But make no mistake that this event, as well as bronc riding, has never been sequestered solely by men. It is uncommon, but yes, there are women who ride bulls as well. I have yet to meet one, but it is certainly on my bucket list. Also, at each of these rodeos, there was such a strong sense of community. For everyone who competed, as well as everyone who attended, there was a strong sense of belonging. Most of the rodeos that I attended lasted for just a weekend, a Saturday and part of a Sunday. But if it was a holiday event, they would go three days. In talking about this, I am remembering quite fondly, as a matter of fact, 
back to when my friend John Hunt asked me to make a photograph of his horse with all of its regalia on. It was during the 4th of July rodeo in Pierce, South Dakota. John was one of the officials for the rodeo events, but he was also one of the flag bearers at the beginning of the rodeo performance. There was such a pride in this honor of being one of the flag bearers, but also there was great pride in the regalia that adorned his horse. Each rodeo opens with a ceremony. Now, the first order of business at every single rodeo is a prayer. Next, the American flag is brought into the arena, being carried by a flag bearer on horseback at full gallop. This flag bearer is always a woman, or a girl, I should say, which I'll talk about in a minute. But as she comes into the arena and she makes one pass around the entire arena, then other flag bearers enter in again on horseback, each one representative of either the state or the town or something else that has to do with some form of patriotism, either on a national or a local level. Now let me get back for a moment to the flag bearer always being a girl. At the SDRA championships, the flag bearer was the annual rodeo queen. And this is the rodeo version, truly, of Miss America. Only this is taken more seriously. And I'm not exaggerating here. When I looked into this, the competition is fierce. And the person, the girl who is crowned rodeo queen for that particular year, that is one of, probably the greatest honor that she will ever, ever receive. Mounted atop her chestnut-colored horse, with the flagpole firmly held in her right hand, she waited for the prayer to finish, which marked the time for her entrance into the arena. But to leave this description of the rodeo queen just as I have would be a great disservice to you, the listener. She, the rodeo queen that is, had the finest of cowboy hats, literally positioned perfectly atop her blonde curls. She wore a magenta blouse that was heavily and finely embroidered. But the elaboration of the embroidery on her blouse was nothing compared to the heavily embroidered chaps that covered her legs. She was, without doubt, the embodiment of rodeo royalty. I was standing only feet away from her while she waited for the prayer to finish. And when I saw her ride off into the arena, my God, it was, it was overwhelmingly emotional because the look that she had, the presence that she had as she entered that arena is that she knew without any doubt that she was the embodiment and the full representation of rodeo and the way of life it represents. When I photographed the rodeo, the 4th of July rodeo in Pierce, South Dakota, the flag bearer there was a young girl, maybe 12 or 13. She rode with such enthusiasm as she passed by me within a couple of feet, literally, I was struck by her presence. 
This was not a gimmick to her, nor was it a novelty. This was a legitimate milestone in her life. In this moment, again, just like the rodeo queen, this young girl carried the pride of her community on this auspicious day of celebration. My final rodeo experience, and by far the one that was the most galvanizing in my search for the humanity of the sport, came on New Year's Eve in Gillette, Wyoming. I had been invited to photograph the final ride of a legendary bronc by the name of Lunatic Fringe. It was to happen at the annual Buck and Ball in Gillette. There is so much that I could say about this event, but it would take far too long to go into it here. But what I can say is that not only did I learn about the awareness of the horse within the rodeo, but I also learned even more about the camaraderie and the mutual respect that the competitors have for one another. For literally the last 15 minutes before Lunatic Fringe made his appearance, I got to stand beside him in the staging area. His breathing was normal. His demeanor was relaxed. He showed absolutely no signs of being agitated in any way. Then, as the latch to the gate, the gate that blocks the horse from entering the chute, when this was pulled back and made a sound, immediately, Lunatic Fringe became alert. His breathing changed, and as soon as the gate was pulled back, he charged into the chute on his own accord. The rider mounted him, secured himself as best he could, then the chute opened. Lunatic Fringe's final ride had commenced. Lunatic fringed Buck like the legend that he was. And when the ride was over, he, as he had done so many times before, headed to the exit gate, which this time remained closed. He stopped at the gate and waited. Then the lights dimmed to nearly black and a spotlight shone in the center of the arena. Again, without any Prompting whatsoever, Lunatic Fringe turned, trotted to the center of the spotlight, stopped for a moment, then kicked out his hind legs high into the light. And when his feet returned to the arena floor, he stood for a moment more, gave his head a shake, then walked off into the dimness of the surrounding light and off of the arena floor for the very last time. It was clear as day to everyone present that Lunatic Fringe was well aware of his role, and I believe from what I had witnessed that he was also well aware that he too was royalty, and everyone was there to see just him. Even now, my eyes begin to well up when I recollect what I had witnessed. The riders, as well as the horses, are, without a doubt, athletes, each, of course, with opposite agendas. And again, 
I think back to the times that I spent with Bud and Bud's horses. He truly loved them and loved them no less than he did his children. Inhumanity? No way. Unless, of course, you factor in the riders. The treatment that they are given by the horses and the bulls is as inhumane as it gets. But nowhere does animosity exist. When a rider is thrown, such as the guy that had his hand stuck and ended up breaking his hand and his wrist, or when a rider is thrown from a bull and gorged by the bull, the rider doesn't have any animosity. The rider doesn't seek or desire revenge. It is just part of the competition. On a quick side note, the day after the New Year's Eve rodeo, there was another Gillette, Wyoming tradition. It was the New Year's Day chicken roping in Gillette. Yes, you heard it right, chicken roping. You know, I tried, when I heard about this, I tried repeatedly to envision this in my head, but I couldn't. I just had to see it for myself. It was held inside a large, spacious bar in Gillette, Wyoming. And unfortunately, I've forgotten the name of it. But as I did some research to try to find a name, it seems that now it's being held in a community center instead. But anyhow, I got off track there. Inside this spacious bar was a metal octagon-shaped ring, I guess you would call it. Uh, it was probably from end to end or side to side, depending how you look at it, about 12 feet across. And inside this metal ring, two competitors known as a team would try to rope a chicken. They would use a thin piece of nylon cord or string. Basically, it looked like bailing wire. And at one end, it had a loop with a slip knot. And they would take this and try to slip it over the chicken's head and thereby lassoing it. Now, I can already hear many of you screaming about the inhumanity. But let me ease your conscience right now. There are rules. And each of the rules, I might add, favor the chicken. Somewhere I actually have an entire list of every rule, but for right now, let me just give you a couple. Okay, If a chicken loses a feather during an event, the competitors are fined, and it's something like $25. If a chicken... <laughs> Sorry, hang on. Okay, if... <laughs> If a chicken poops during an event, the event is paused until the competitors use paper towels to clean it up. And if a chicken is harmed or, God forbid, killed during an event, the fine is truly exorbitant. To my astonishment, the chickens usually won the event. I wasn't sure how the competitors were unable to achieve what seemed to be a simple task. Now, some of that difficulty may have been the result of the competitors celebrating until the wee hours of New Year's Eve. I don't know. But while hanging around in between photographing the events, 
my friend Lori, who heads up Bronc Riding Nation, hung out with me and my wife. Yes, I did drag my wife to the chicken roping competition on New Year's Day. But anyhow, Lori introduced me to one of the four Marlboro men who for decades were not only the symbol for a brand of cigarettes, but they were also the image, the very iconic image of the American man. And with that, I bring to close another episode. I have added links in the show notes to a gallery of images from the rodeos and even one from, yes, the chicken roping event. I have also included links to Lunatic Fringe's retirement as well as to Lori's Bronc Riding Nation. As always, I thank you most sincerely for joining me and allowing me to tell you another story from the world. Until next time, this is David Robert Farmery. And yes, as always, this episode is copyrighted 2020, all rights reserved. See you next time.